before I teach, I uh, need to make a little announcement here. On uh, October 27th coming up, we are launching our men's ministry at, our, at my house called Courageous. And um, one of the things, we're going to have a big breakfast that starts at 10 a.m. We did that to be sensitive to college students who, so uh, we're going to talk about being a dangerous man. We're going to do a man activity. And one of the things we're going to do each time is we're going to give a sword to a man that has modeled extreme courage. So, uh, so this sword here gets to be held by somebody for about a month. Uh, then we'll want it back. Just to be clear. So that is October 20. It does cost money. So uh, that's October 27th. <laughs> all right. So I want to welcome all of you guys here. Uh, we are in the middle of this series called Knowing God. We're just looking at God and talking about who he is. And this morning, I'm going to talk about uh, the attribute of joy. And every now and then, someone writes a book that just changes your life and provides such a, a profound insight into Christianity or, or who God is. And um, this book was written uh, a long time ago. It's by John Piper. It's called Desiring God. But what this book does is it unpacks the joy of God, which I want to share with you guys here today. So we're going to start in 1 Peter 1.8. doesn't matter if you have a Bible or not. 1 Peter. This is uh, my early experience as a Christian. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And when I first became a believer in Jesus, I was so overwhelmed with what God had done for me. There was just this perpetual song in my heart, but that song faded in time. And the reason it faded was because of how I viewed God. And Piper in this book asks the question that all of us need to consider. Do you think God is a well? Or do you think God is a fountain? A well is something that human beings fill up. We could form a little bucket brigade and bring to God our worship and our service, and we could give back to God. After all, we're obligated. It's our duty to do that for God. And Piper's argument is that God is not, after all, a well. He is a fountain. He is an overflowing fountain. And the way you glorify a fountain is not by living out of obligation. The way you glorify a fountain is you get down on your knees and you drink and you drink. And your life is so filled up with the goodness of God that instinctively out of your heart you want to tell your friends about the living water that you have found. Okay, we're going to do something here this morning that uh, you guys got to give us a lot, a lot of love here. Don and Steve, could, could you come join me? Um, we did a song. I want you to be in the middle near the mic. So we did this song 
Uh, out of Zephaniah 3.17, I'll explain it here and why we're doing this in just a minute, but we want to sing just a little bit of it for you, okay? All right. The Lord your God, God is in your midst, a warrior who saves. He will exult over you with joy. He will renew you in his love. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. 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 Awesome. Wow. Thank you. That was awesome. Now, you might wonder what in the world just happened here and what is going on in this church. There's an important decision that we need to make right now. Let us never, never sing that way. Let us never, ever have clapping uh, like that. I remember hearing that when I first came and I, I brought a bunch of friends and we did this secret clap and I thought, I don't know if I will come back here or not. I want you to look at Zephaniah 3.17 with me. The Lord your God is in your midst, a warrior who saves. He will exult over you with joy. With what? Joy. With joy. He will exult over you with joy. The word exult, what is that? That's like when you have your hands raised, you're watching a football game, and your team scores that winning touchdown, and you're like, this is awesome. He will exult over you with joy. He will renew you in his love. He will rejoice over you. He will rejoice over you. He will delight in you. He's excited. He's happy. He will rejoice over you with shouts of joy. In this series so far, we've talked about the holiness of God. And I remember when I heard that for the first time, it's like, okay, I get it. We've talked about the covenant of God. Okay, I get it. We've talked about the love of God, the goodness of God, even the wildness of God, that God is out of the box. We've talked about the sovereignty of God. And, and all of those things... It was like, I get it. But when it came to joy, when I heard about joy, the joy of God, it's like, I don't know if my heart can get this. I don't know if I can really embrace this. So we have a little video from the Bible Project uh, to share with you to kind of set the table for this talk on joy. Being in a good mood is really great. And most languages have lots of words to describe the experience, like happy, cheerful, joyful, and so on. The same goes for the languages of the Bible. In ancient biblical Hebrew, there's a variety of words, like simcha, sason, or gil. In the Greek New Testament, there's kara, euphersune, or agaliasis. Each word has its own unique nuance, but they all basically refer to the feeling of joy and happiness. Now, what makes these biblical joy words interesting is noticing the kinds of things that bring happiness, and also seeing how joy is a key theme that runs through the whole story of the Bible. Let's start with sources of joy. On page one of the Bible, God says that this world is very good. And so naturally, people find joy in beautiful and good things of life, like growing flocks or an abundant harvest on the hills. The poet of Psalm 104 says, a good bottle of wine is God's gift to bring joy to people's hearts. People find joy at a wedding or in their children. There's even a Hebrew proverb that compares the joy that perfume brings to your nose with the joy a good friend brings to your heart. However, human history isn't just a joy fest. 
The biblical story shows how we live in a world that's been corrupted by our own selfishness. It's marked by death and loss. And this is where biblical faith offers a unique perspective on joy. It's an attitude God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So when the Israelites were suffering from slavery in Egypt, God raised up Moses to lead them into freedom. And the first thing the Israelites did was sing for joy. Even though they were in the middle of a desert, they were vulnerable, the promised land was still far away, they rejoiced anyway. Later biblical poets looked back on this story and they remembered how the Lord caused his people to leave with joy, his chosen ones with shouts of joy. This joy in the wilderness, this was a defining moment, a way of saying that the joy of God's people is not determined by their struggles, but by their future destiny. This theme appears later in Israel's story, when Israel suffered under the oppression of foreign empires. The prophet Isaiah looked for a day when God would raise up a new deliverer like Moses. That's when those redeemed by the Lord will return to Zion with glad shouts, with eternal joy crowning their heads. Happiness and joy will overtake them. And while the Israelites waited, they chose joy to anticipate their future redemption. This is why it's significant that when Jesus of Nazareth was born, it was announced as good news that brings great joy. We're told that Jesus himself rejoiced and gave thanks to God his Father when he began to announce the kingdom of God. He even taught his followers the same joy in the wilderness, saying, when people reject you or persecute you for following me, rejoice, be very glad, because your reward is great in heaven. After his death and resurrection, Jesus commissioned his followers to go out and announce the good news that he was the risen king of the world. And as they did so, the early Christian communities were known for being full of joy, even when they were persecuted. Like when the apostle Paul was sitting in a dirty Roman prison, he could say that he's chosen joy even if he gets executed. He called this the joy of faith or joy in the Lord. He believed it was the gift of God's spirit, a sign that Jesus' presence is with you, inspiring hope in the midst of hardship. And when you believe that Jesus' love has overcome death itself, joy becomes reasonable in the darkest of circumstances. Now this doesn't mean that you ignore or suppress your sorrow. That's not healthy or necessary. Paul often expressed his grief about missing loved ones or losing friends or his own freedom. He called it being full of sorrow and yet rejoicing. As he acknowledged his pain, he also made a choice to trust Jesus that his loss wouldn't be the final word. This is very different from the trite advice to turn that frown upside down. Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. And that's what biblical joy is all about. Wasn't that good? I would just say we had a little bit, uh, we were a little too happy about that reference to wine. <laughs> like... I just want to orient you, and, and don't be that enthusiastic in every church you're going to be in for the rest of your life. I mean, you might not survive that. John Piper said this, it's a glorious thing for God to be as happy as he is. God's glory consists much in the fact that he is happy beyond our wildest imagination. So what I want to do in this talk is I want to just share with you some meditations I've had on joy. I want to share six meditations. The first is this, the pursuit of happiness is universal. This, this is pretty easy. Everyone everywhere seeks after their own happiness. It's not just a constitutional right here in America. It is a law of the heart. It's like gravity. You can't help but do it. If you have in your mind someone that seeks after their own misery, really in a really twisted way, 
they're seeking to find their happiness in their misery. Here's the way Pascal put it. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it, it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The will never takes the least step, but to this object, this is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. So it's a universal law that everyone seeks after happiness. That's really pretty easy. But here's the second one, the second meditation, is God appeals primarily to our happiness, not to our duty. That when we look at the Bible, when we read the commands, the, the subtext of everything is not you should do this, you must do this, because I'm a well and I need you to do this. Instead, God is a fountain and every command is, this is going to make you happy. This is going to bring you fulfillment. It is not our duty or obligation. The, this weekend at the uh, students' retreat here, we talked about the will of God. And so we've, I don't know if this was shared this weekend or not, but a, a summary of this point is that God's will equals my joy. God's will equals my joy. Let's look at Matthew 16. We're going to look at the hardest thing that Jesus said. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. As you know that Jesus was not the only one crucified. The crucifixion of Jews in Rome, uh, in the Roman Empire, was, was a common thing. And so Jesus could like point to other people dying on the cross and say, in a sense, saying, you've got to like, your life's over now. You've got a new purpose. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. Even the hardest command in the Bible, pick up your cross and live sacrificially for other people. Why? So you can find life. So you can get a bigger heart. So you can experience joy. And my point is, if the hardest of all the commandments enables our joy, then perhaps everything that is written has that coded into it, our joy. You know, when you think about the Ten Commandments, most of us read the Ten Commandments, and we think, ah, oh, you know, this is what... I am obligated to. This is what I must give to God. But I want you to look at Deuteronomy 529 with me. Oh, that they had such a heart as this, always to fear me, that means to reverence, and to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. The intention, the motive in God's heart in all of his commandments is our blessing. So, like God's posture to the world, a world that is reveling in their fun without God, God's posture to them is not, you got to stop having fun. God's posture is, life isn't found there, life is found here in my son. I don't know if this 
is resonating with you. For me, I lived under duty performance Christianity for years and years. And this was like an epiphany for me to get this twisted and then untwisted. Duty kills joy. It kills joy. And the more we live under an obligation, the more our personal experience of happiness and joy in God will be diminished. Another way of looking at this is uh, just the illustration of a husband and wife. So the husband asks the question, suppose a, a husband asks his wife if he must kiss her goodnight. So uh, I, I'm not sure what Jana would, how Jana would react if I said, must I kiss you goodnight? But the answer is, her answer is, you must, but not that kind of must. Like, you must. We've got to have relationship. I want relationship, but not that kind of relationship. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Let's just look at that first word, delight. What is the implication here? If the Bible is telling us, delight yourself in the Lord, the Lord must be delightful. Right? You must be able to take this book and read this book and get out of it this God that is just completely, thoroughly enjoyable. Even in the hardest of commands. Delight yourself in him. He appeals to to us. Think about the Beatitudes. Jesus goes out, greatest preacher of all time, gives what some people would say is the greatest sermon of all time. The Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew 5 through 7. And he begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek or the gentle. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And what we hear is obligation. What we hear is, yes, you should be this way. And that word blessed means happy. And not just happy, but angelically happy. And so in this greatest sermon, Jesus starts and he says, you want to be happy? Here's how. You want to be happy? Here's how. You want to be happy? Third meditation is God is indeed infinitely happy. Beyond our wildest imagination, God is a God of joy. Think about creation. So with me, I love the stars. I love the ocean, especially if I'm on it fishing. Um, I love beaches. What do you guys love in creation? Mountains. Mountains. That's not a good thing to love if you live in Florida. What? <laughs> Flowers? What else? Horses. Horses puppies. Bears. Forests. So humans. Oh, good answer. Very righteous. Um, <laughs> I don't know if you've ever thought this, that God loves his creation. Job 38, verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? This is God dialoguing with Job. Tell me if, you've ha if you have understanding. And then verse 7 says, it references the time in, in creation, as God creates something, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God, that is angels, shouted for joy. Now we have this little uh, plaque in our kitchen, except we lost it. And it said, uh, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? It's just the truth. If, if the parent sets the tone, 
So what is God doing as he creates the universe if the angels are rejoicing? He's rejoicing. It's like God enjoys being God. God loves flowers and mountains and puppy dogs and humans. I wasn't going to share this, but I think it's Psalm 147 that says the Lord takes pleasure in his people. Think about that. Like it's one thing for God to love me, but another for him to like me. Right? Let's look at Jesus, uh, Hebrews chapter 1. I love, I love this verse right here, Hebrews 1.8. Uh, this is God speaking, and it says, But of the Son, he says, about the Son, God the Father says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Let's just stop. This is God the Father speaking to God the Son, and God the Father calls Jesus God. Pretty cool, right? Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter, scepter of rightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Because you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness, therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. You know, I don't know how many of you guys have seen like Jesus movies, but uh, there's some really wonderful Jesus movies, and he's always intense. And I believe Jesus is intense and passionate, but I've never seen a movie capture this aspect of Jesus just being filled with joy. And it's right here in the text. John 15, verse 11, Jesus, Jesus speaking to his disciples. These things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And the disciples are looking at Jesus. Is, if all they see is intensity and passion, they're like, oh, you look kind of depressed, actually. Right? The only way that Jesus could say this is if they had known him and experienced the joy of Jesus is like just being with you is so awesome. So, fourth meditation. The source of God's joy. The source of God's joy is his power to redeem evil. So when we talk about God being infinitely happy beyond our wildest imagination, we know we live in a world full of evil, right? We know that many of us here, maybe all of us, have experienced personal evil. We, we live in a broken, fallen world. It would make sense if God was just like kind of pissed off all the time, totally frustrated at the world. There is a sense in which he is. If you've ever been abused, I want to share with you the most helpful thing I've ever learned is when Jesus said, if someone causes one of these little ones to stumble, it'd be better to have a millstone hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. And this is an angry Jesus saying, don't you mess with my people. And I want you to hear that if you've ever been abused, that there's an anger in the heart of God toward those that would abuse. Well, then how can, how, how can God have joy? How can God possibly have joy if he has that kind of emotional reaction to the evil of the world? And I love this illustration from Piper. I'm going to steal it from him. As I've said before, if you steal one thing, uh, you're a thief. If you steal everything, you're a genius. So um, 
I'm the latter in this case. So Piper's illustration was this, is that when God looks at the evil of the world through the zoom lens, when he narrows in on that one event going on in one of our lives, he hates it. But when God uses his wide angle lens and he looks at what he's going to do, how he's going to move into that very evil and bring hope and redemption to those of us, as a, of us who have been hurt, then God has joy. God loves to move in to evil and redeem it in the hearts of his people. In the context of Zephaniah, this is really cool. That song that we sang for you, um, you guys need to go up and thank Stephen Don later personally for being willing to do that. The context of the context of Zephaniah, the people of God have ignored the Bible. Did you know that when a king, when a person became a king, that that king was instructed to read through the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible? That's what the king was supposed to do. And the king somewhere stopped doing that. And then the people closed the book. And then the book disappeared. And the people of God didn't have the book of God anymore. And then a king named Josiah comes along. And Josiah finds, <laughs> finds the Bible, the first five books, and Nehemiah opens it up, and they read the scriptures, and the people begin to weep because of what doofuses they have been. And Nehemiah 8.10 says, stop weeping, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Like, God loves to move into this. And so that verse that we read earlier about God being a God who rejoices over you, even in the midst of our, like, we have fallen on our back, we've been unfaithful, and God moves in with joy and says, I'm moving into this situation. Another way of looking at this is what frustrates you. When we're frustrated, it's almost always because we have no control. We can't control our circumstances. We can't control that stupid driver on I-4. We just can't control. God can control everything. And so God has joy. Look at Isaiah 46, verse 9. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no, no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good, what? Pleasure. Piper's book, the subtitle is it Meditations of a Christian Hedonist. Hedonism is seeking after pleasure. Much of our world is hedonistic in nature. God's solution for being hedonistic is to find a greater joy, a bigger joy. And God has a bigger joy. God is a God of pleasure. And so when I read this, I circled, underlined stars all over in my Bible. God enjoys moving in to difficulty and pain. And the ultimate expression of this is the cross of Christ. Now look at this verse. This is easy to misunderstand, but Isaiah 53, verse 10. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, this is interesting. If he will render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. How do you see your offspring, your spiritual descendants when you're dead? This is a reference to resurrection. He will prolong his days 
and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. I just want you to imagine for a moment with me Jesus Christ on the cross. Do you think that God the Father enjoyed Jesus standing before the Sanhedrin and these religious hypocrites punching him in the face? Do you think he enjoyed Jesus being slapped and spat upon? Did God enjoy Jesus being thrust up onto a cross and mocked? And the answer is no. God hated every moment of it in the zoom lens. But in the wide-angle lens, knowing that 2,000 years later, some of us would be so humbled and awed by what he had done for us that he would become our chief joy. And God says, I was pleased to crush my son for you. Let's look at Hebrews 12, chapter 2. Verse 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, for who, who for the joy, the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him. 1 Timothy 1.11 says this. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God which I have been entrusted. That's kind of chunky. It doesn't really move me. I'm not even sure what it really says. But when we look closer, the word gospel means what? Good news. And the word glory is like the greatness. And what do we say blessed is? Happy. And so this verse becomes this, the good news of the greatness of the happy God. Do you see what it's saying? Like God says, I'm perfectly happy to come down and save you. That's really, really good Good news. So here's the fifth meditation here. Salvation is the conversion. It is the conversion of our joys. To come into a relationship with God, must we put faith in him? Yes. Must we repent, that is, turn away from our former life and turn to him? Must we do that? Yes, we must. But on another level, salvation is having the source of our happiness change. It is the conversion of our joys. This is why Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Is anyone thirsty? If you're hungry, come to me. This is Jesus appealing to human desire and saying, find your fulfillment in me. So I want to share a really chunky uh, quote, and I need to give you a little, little introduction to it. My family, uh, the feel of my family was very stoic. And stoicism is being reserved and unemotional, not expressing your feelings. My family was very reserved. We were also Kantian. And what I mean by that was Immanuel Kant was a philosopher. And one of the main things he taught was about duty. The, the reason we should love other people is that is our ultimate duty. And so these two things together, this stoic Kantian home was live out of duty and your feelings don't really matter. And so what I lived for then, before coming to know Christ, was sex, drinking, partying, and just my selfish ambition, whatever that, that was. So now let's look at what C.S. Lewis says. 
The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. We are told to deny ourselves and to take up our crosses in order, <clears throat> in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find, if we do so, contains uh, an appeal to desire. Yeah, you can see I had some personal notes in there. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to de desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Let's just pause and make sure we get this. Living out of duty, performance, obligation is not Christianity. That's what he's saying. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. Let's just pause here. God doesn't say to a world that is fulfilling its passions, stop having joy. Instead, he says you need to pursue a different joy, a deeper joy, a better joy. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are, too, we are far too easily pleased. Do you guys track with that? Luke 15 Jesus, Jesus is telling a parable. This is what he says. So then he told this parable, what man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Just think like a shepherd for a minute. One sheep wanders off and is lost, and you have to get up in the middle of the night and have to be inconvenienced and go search for that lost sheep, and I would not be happy. I would be a little ticked off about this. I'd be frustrated at that stupid sheep for getting lost. And the heart of God that is revealed here is Jesus says, in a sense, are you kidding me? I love going after that one, and you were that one. You either are that one right now or you were at one time. And the heart of God says, man, I just love going after you and finding you. And when I find you, when that great moment comes, when you stop being on the outside of faith and you move inside, when you decide this is my day, I'm going to stop messing around and let Jesus come into my life. When that happens, a party is thrown in heaven. The church should be a place of joy as a result. Matthew 13, 44. We're almost done here. Matthew 13, 44. And I know that some of you have a, uh, a slightly different interpretation of this, so I, I want to explain this carefully. 
The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man goes and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And I know some of us, this verse is very precious to us because we think that we're the treasure that's hidden in the field. You can continue thinking that because you are. Because God has come and Jesus had sold everything to come get you. That's true. But the other meaning that's here is that when we find Christ, when we find the kingdom of God, when we understand it, what's the response, the normal response of someone that understands what Jesus has done for them? Man, I'll just sell everything if I can just follow him. It's a response of joy. Last meditation, healthy discipleship. Healthy discipleship is fueled by joy. We're not all about being a Sunday attender, just coming here and filling a seat. What we're doing here at H2O is inviting us all into what's called discipleship actually following after Jesus. If God isn't the way that I've described him here today, what would it be like? What would worship be like if God had his arms crossed? If God is a well, and we need to fill up God with our worship, then worship would be like calisthenics, like give me 50 jumping jacks, you know, give me some push-ups. We would have to give back to God, but the psalmist doesn't say that. Psalm 16, verse 11. Psalm 16, Psalm 16, verse 11. Thank you. You, you make known to me the path of life in your presence. There is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forever. If God is a well, Reading scripture would be this obligation. Like, we would say things like this. I know I should read the Bible more. That's Kantian thought. That's Stoic Kantian Christianity. And instead, that's not the way the scripture speaks. Look at Jeremiah 15. Verse 16. Your words were found, and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart, for I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. And what's beautiful about everything that we've talked about today is that this is never gonna let up. The joy of God will overflow, 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 calling us to worship, to talk to him, to study his word, to be a community, for the rest of our days. Jeremiah 32, verse 40. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me, the reverence of me in their hearts that they may not turn away from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. And I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. Last week we discussed the messenger is the message. Joy is a very serious business that we must attend to. G.K. Chesterton said this, joy is the gigantic secret of the Christian because we know a God of joy, because we see his pleasure in redeeming our personal lives 
in a world of evil. Would you stand with me? Let's pray, and then let's enter into worship of the God of joy. God, we give to you this day not the reluctant devotion of a distracted husband toward his wife. We give to you today not our obligation, not our duty. We give to you this day our joy because you, God, rejoice over us through the gospel because of the blood of Christ. want to build a life. We want to build a life that is pleasing to you. We want to build a life on your word and on your will because your will equals our morning, Lord, draw us our hearts into a place of worship where we can just enjoy how great you are and build our lives on your word in the name, in the great name of Jesus.